Have you ever prepared the best you could for something and still didn't know quite what to expect? You ever done that before? Well, in case you're worried that I'm talking about the sermon, <laughs> um, I'm not. I'm actually talking about parenthood. Um, how many of you are parents out there? Okay, would you agree with me that there is no way that you could adequately prepare to be a parent, right? Well, in 1998, um, my husband Chris and I found out that we were expecting a child, a little girl. We picked out her name. We did all the things that you were supposed to do. We went to the birthing classes. We had showers. I read what to expect when you're expecting. You know, I thought that would give me everything I needed to know. Um, we did it all. We did the nursery. We, I babysat. I kept the nursery at church. I did all these things trying to prepare for being a parent, for being a mom. And so the time came for me to have Rebecca and we went to the hospital and all went well in the birth and delivery. And we put her in her car seat to bring her home. And I was checking off all those boxes of things that I had learned to do. And I was doing them so well. And we got home and we went into her room and she was still in her little car seat and we placed her on the floor and we stepped back and we looked at her and we said, well, what do we do now? We really didn't know what to do. Like, do we, she seems really content. Did we just leave her in her car seat? <laughs> Did we take her out? Does she need changing? All these things that I thought I learned. When it all came to it and there was a lot of reality happening, it was hard. Happy to say that she survived our parenting skills or lack thereof. She turned 18 last week. She's going off to college. And we decided to try it again, and we had a second child, and he's almost 14. And so God has blessed us. But let me tell you something. We did not know what to expect, and we did not know how to prepare. Well, today we're going to study the life of Joshua. And the title of the message is Prepare for the Amazing. Because I think you'll see through the life of Joshua as we go throughout Scripture that God really was preparing him for something amazing. So I hope you'll see the same thing. The first place we see Joshua, I mean, you've heard of Joshua, right? Joshua's not obscure, but he's also not one of those big names that we hear all the time. He does have a book in the Old Testament, but we don't study about him a lot. We don't hear about him a lot. And so we find him in Exodus. It's the first time he's mentioned. There is really no introduction. Um, the Malachites have attacked the Israelites, and in Exodus 17, 9, and 10, Joshua's name pops up for the first time. It says, Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. And so Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. That's our first introduction to Joseph. I'm sorry, Joshua. So we see Joshua for the first time. He's chosen to lead basically in a battle against the Amalekites. So we can think a few things about this. First of all, he must have been trusted enough to do that. Secondly, um, you know, Moses doesn't go out and help him. Moses says, I'm going to go to the top of the hill and stand with the staff in my hands. So there's a lot of trust there. We find out as we read throughout Exodus and Numbers um, and Deuteronomy that Joshua was actually Moses' aide. He did everything with Moses. 
Um, we also find Joshua's name when Moses goes to Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. Joshua goes up at least halfway with him and stays there the entire 40 days until Moses comes down. So Joshua's spending a lot of time with Moses as an aide and probably, you know, in a mentorship position. So the first thing that I think that God says to Joshua in preparing for the amazing is that you need training, okay? Training. So he's getting it. He's getting it by hanging around Moses, by learning from him, by doing the things that Moses does. You know, we think sometimes when we're in training, whether we're training for a job or training, you know, for ministry or whatever it is, maybe we've done an internship or we're being mentored by somebody, you know, it's, it's sometimes not all that fun because we're just kind of in the background and we're just doing sometimes the scut work, you know, that has to be done. But I think that training is necessary because God is, is looking at us to see if we're going to, to follow through with what we're doing, to follow this person. So it's leadership development at its best. We do this well here at Christ Community. We just saw this in action um, in the um, transition between Jay and Dwayne and also between Mason and Brandon. We've had quite a few um, transitions like that. And in those situations, both situations, those guys had been in training before time. And so when these people felt called to leave, Mason to go to seminary, Jay to plant a church, these people just stepped in. There wasn't, we didn't even post the job. If you're wondering, I didn't even know that job was open. You didn't because we didn't post it. Because there was a natural There was a mentoring going on and a natural transition that took place. So there was training going on. So what are you in training for? Maybe you're not in a training position that is actually, um, you know, it's formal or whatever, but maybe God is training you for something. Maybe if you really think through the things that are going on in your life right now, you can think, what is God training me for? What have I been trained for? What kind of life experiences have God given me to prepare me for what is next. So we have training as the first way to prepare for the amazing. The second thing that usually happens when God is preparing us for the amazing is trial or trials. And we've all either been through a trial or presently going through a trial or we'll go through a trial. That's just how life is. Life is hard. And so we go through trials. Last week when Keith preached, he told us that Abraham had many promises from the Lord, and one of those promises was the gift of land. God was very clear to Abraham that he would get land for the Israelites. He would possess land. And um, in Genesis 15, I don't have the um, verse up there, but it says, to your descendants, I will give the land. And he talks about how widespread the land is and how wonderful the land is. And so we understand that at this point, The Israelites have been freed from Egypt. Moses has gotten them out of Egypt. They are now wandering in the wilderness and wandering and wandering. And there is land that has been given to them. The promised land has been promised to them, has been given to them already. And Moses is getting them ready to enter into the promised land. And so at this point in the juncture, he says, hey, let's go look at that land. And we pick up in Numbers Chapter 13 says, These are the names of the men Moses sent to scout the land. Moses gave Hosea, or Joshua, salvation, son of Nun, a new name, Joshua, which means God saves. 
When Moses sent them off to scout out Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and then into the hill country. Look the land over. See what it's like. Assess the people. Are they strong or weak? Are there few or many? Observe the land. Is it pleasant or harsh? Describe the towns where they live. Are they open camps or fortified with walls? And the soil, is it fertile or barren? Are there forests? And try to bring back a sample of the produce that grows there. This is the season for the first ripe grape. So Moses is saying, go and assess all this. And he's given them very specific directions, including bring back some bounty. So we pick up, I'm going to skip some of this for those who are doing the slides. When they arrived at the Eshel Valley, they cut off a branch with a single cluster of grapes. It took two men to carry the single cluster of grapes, and they slung it on a pole. And then after 40 days of scouting out the land, they returned home. Now, I want you to picture these grapes, okay? How many of you have grapes so large to fit on a pole, you have those in your refrigerator? How many of you have those? Because mine are about this big, you know? This is so big that they're having to put it between two poles and two men are carrying it. Pretty big, right? Very big. Like I would think that one grape could probably feed several families. It was that big. It was that, um, I mean, almost ridiculous big, right? So that's what they found when they went to the promised land. So after 40 days of scouting, they, they returned home. And they reported to the whole congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And then they told the story of their trip. And it went like this. Picking up in verse 27, it says, We went to the land to which you sent us, and oh, it does flow with milk and honey. Just look at this fruit. The only thing is that people who live there are fierce. Their cities are huge and well fortified. And worse yet, we saw descendants of the giant Anak. Amalekites are spread out in the Negev. There are Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites. They hold the hill country. And Canaanites are established in the Mediterranean Sea and along the Jordan River. And then Caleb interrupted. He called for silence before Moses and he said, hey. In other words, hey, stop it. Be quiet. Let's go up and take the land now. We can do it. But the others said, we can't attack those people. They're way stronger than we are. And they continued to spread scary rumors among the people of Israel. They said, we scouted out the land from one end to the other. It's a land that swallows people whole. Everybody we saw was huge. Why, we even saw the Nephilim giants, because the Anak giants come from the Nephilim. Alongside of them, we felt like grasshoppers, and they looked down on us as if we were grasshoppers. Now, I want you to picture the scenario. They have gone from the southernmost tip to the northernmost tip of this area of land that they're supposed to scout. It's about 250 miles. They were gone for 40 days. They go and do what, God, what Moses has asked them to do, which is to assess the land, assess the people, find out what's going on. But the first thing they do is find the grapes. And they pick the grapes up and they put them on this pole. And I have to imagine that they're pretty amazed by the size of the grapes. Would you not be amazed by the size of those grapes, right? So when they came back to tell the story of their scouting trip, you would think, like any good fisherman, that they were, would exaggerate 
the size of the grapes. I mean, they were big, but they could say they were really, really big, and they were. But that's not what they did. They came back, they showed the grapes, and then when they told the story, it wasn't the the fruit they exaggerated. It was the things that were against them that they exaggerated. The story that they told the Israelites was not about the bounty that they saw. The story they told the Israelites was about the things that were against them. The enemies, the huge people. And granted, a lot of that was true. There were Anak, people of Anak who were there, who were from the Nephilim. And the Nephilim were giants, basically. So there were very big people there. There were armies there. But they forgot that Abraham had already been promised the land. And so Caleb, and I believe that Caleb and Joshua, who were two of the 12 spies, there was one from each tribe. I believe Caleb and Joshua were two of the youngest. I did some research. I can't find out exactly how old they are. I always thought they were, honestly, I thought they were teenagers. As I've told this story before, I really thought they were in their teens. I think maybe they're somewhere between 20 and 40, which is a wide age span, I think. But we can say they're around 30. What I will say, though, is that I'm almost positive they were the youngest of that group of 12. So here are the youngest two, with Caleb being the spokesperson, saying, wait a minute. Wait. We come back from this, and we, we have these huge grapes in our hand, and we see the promised land, and it is flowing with milk and honey. And what are you doing? You're talking about everything that's against us, because that's how we do right? We focus on the things that are against us instead of clearly the promises that have been given to us. Are we going to believe God and take him at his word when his word tells us what are his promises, that he is good, that he has a plan? Or are we going to settle for what is easy and comfortable and familiar? Because after those guys came back and they gave the story, what happened next was there was an uproar. The Israelites were like, whoa, we're not doing that. We're not going over there. Why didn't we just stay in Egypt? In Egypt, they were slaves. They would rather be in Egypt as slaves than to force through with God on their side and try to go against these enemies. That's how we do sometimes. They grumbled Why do we have this going on? Why is this happening to us? Why can't we just go back to Egypt? And then in 14, verse 6, it says, Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, members of the scouting party, ripped their clothes and addressed the assembled people of Israel. The land we walk through and scout it out is a very good land, very good indeed. And if God is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land a land that flows, as they say, with milk and honey, and he'll give it to us. Just don't rebel against God and don't be afraid of those people while we'll have them for lunch. That's obviously the message version. They have no protection and God is on our side. Don't be afraid of them. It took the two youngest in the group to remind them, hey, we have God on our side and he's already given us this land. Don't be, don't be afraid and don't rebel against God. Do what he's asked us to do. 
<clears throat> so when we go through trials, it tests our character. It helps us to know really where we are in our relationship with God. Do we really trust him? Do we really trust him? You know, following God is not always logical. Honestly, you know, if I had been one of the people of the Israelites with that story, I would have been scared too and think, eh, well, it's not great here, but I really don't want to go there and do that. So following God is, is not always logical. Sometimes it is, but a lot of times it doesn't make any sense. But following God is always life-giving, and it's always life-changing because he is on our side. So are we going to listen to the naysayers or are we going to listen to God? So God puts us through training and trials. And the next thing I think he has us go through in order to prepare for the amazing is transition. Transition has almost become a dirty word around here if you've been here for a while. The last few months have been a lot of transition. Keith announced in January that he would be... um, transitioning out in the next couple of years. And that's a very, very hard thing. And a similar thing happened to Joshua. And we pick up in Numbers 27, verse 18 through 20. It says, So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit of leadership, and lay your hand on him. Have him stand before Eleazar the priest and the entire assembly and commission him in their presence. And give him some of your authority so the whole Israelite community will obey him. Now, what's going on here? Well, I'll tell you what's going on. God came to Moses and he said, you're going to die. And you're not going into the promised land. Because you disobeyed me in front of the entire Israelites. And you're not going into the promised land. And I don't want to get stuck there, okay? I want to move on to what he decides he's going to do. Because at this point, Moses is like, but the people need a leader, okay? The people need a leader. So God, what are you going to do? And this is where we pick up in Numbers 27, where the Lord says to Moses, choose Joshua, son of Nun. Take Joshua, son of Nun, as your successor. So the Lord chooses Joshua, now, I don't, you know, I don't know. There could be lots of reasons, but I fully believe one of the reasons that Joshua was chosen is because he had been training with Moses. He knew what to do. He had been around, around one of the greatest leaders in the history of, you know, Christianity, in the history of the Bible. He had been in training. He also had gone through trials, and he had come out as one of those to say, hey, We can do this because we have the Lord on our side. So he is ready for the transition. Maybe. He doesn't think so. God thinks he's ready for the transition or he wouldn't have appointed him. But he says, commission him, lay hands on him, and get him ready for the job. Now, if I were Joshua, as in the case of Keith leaving, a lot of us are saying the same thing of, but why? Why can't he just stay? We, we can do this together. You know, I think Joshua was saying, hey, I, I'm willing to have, you know, to continue to follow Moses, and he's the better leader, leader than us. So can he just stay and lead us into the promised land, and I'll be his aid, and I'll be his helper. I really want to do this with him, not without him. 
I can imagine that he was terrified. Terrified of the calling that had been given to him. I really believe that if Moses had stayed in the picture, that Joshua would really never understood God's heart for him and what God could do in his life. Because sometimes we have this person in our life who is an incredible mentor, an incredible leader, and we follow them and we sit under them and we learn from them. And then it comes time for God to call them out or elsewhere and we stomp our feet. No, you can't do this, God. And then God chooses one of us to lead. And we say, no, 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 we don't want this. No, no, we liked it the other way. Please don't do this. I'm not ready. Please don't do this. Many of you know that last year was one of the most difficult years of my life. Um, after about two months in the hospital, my mom, who was diagnosed with cancer several years ago and had beaten it several times, the cancer went to her brain. But we never expected her to die. That's not what they said. In fact, the last thing that I heard from the doctor before I left the hospital in Atlanta was she is doing so well with chemo. She's really doing well. Like we've seen lots of things happen within her body. And I was excited. And the next day she went unresponsive. And a week later, she died. My mom and if you know me well, you know this about me. My mom was my best friend. She was my spiritual mentor. She was the person that I had trained under, not just being my mom, but spiritually, emotionally, the whole works. I had trained under her. We had gone through so many trials together. And here I am going through the biggest trial of my life. And she's not there. And there's this transition that's happening of she's gone and I'm still here. And I didn't like it. And I stomped my feet. I said, this isn't fair, God. We were supposed to do so many things together that we haven't had a chance to do yet. Why? Why are you doing this? I don't really have the answer to that question. But I will tell you what God has done in the last year. He has shown me himself in a way I have never, ever known before. His presence has become palpable. You know, I asked myself then, last February, a year and a half ago almost, how can I do life without her, God? And now I can say not only do I live life without her, I'm actually thriving in a lot of ways. And I don't understand that. And I still cry just about every other day when I think about her. But I know that God, God, God's presence has been such a big thing in my life. So when we think about church transition, and we think about Keith leaving, we think about, you know, different people, Jay moving on, and Mason, there have been others. How do we do this without them? Is that your question? That's the staff's question sometimes. How do we do this thing without Keith? I've been on five ministry staffs. This is by far the most healthy. And Keith has been the best leader and mentor that I've ever known in ministry. And so when he announced this, I was like, no, not happening. I am not going to do this. 
And the Lord has softened my heart and softened the hearts of our staff and said, Who's really, who really are you following here? Are you following Keith or are you following me? Because I'm still here and I'm still going to be here during this transition. Transition requires trust, a lot of trust. Do we deny transition? Do we manipulate? Do we fight? Do we settle? Or do we believe truly that God has a plan and it is good? And do we trust him in the transition? The next thing I think God has for us in preparing for the amazing is that trust factor. Trust. We have to learn to trust him. It sounds so simple, but it's the hardest thing to do. You know what I mean? In the moment of the trial, in the moment of the transition, in the moment of whatever you're going through, trust sounds really easy. Believing God sounds really easy, but when it comes down to it, it's hard. It's hard to give everything over to him and believe that he loves us, that he has a plan for us, and that he is good. Joshua was in that place. Moses has died. He's left. He's left alone to take up the mantle that was left. And it was a big mantle, let me tell you. Moses wrote the entire, you know, (laughs) Genesis through Deuteronomy. I mean, this was a big deal. And Joshua felt so inadequate. And God knew that. And so we pick up in Joshua 1 what what God had to say to Joshua. In verse 3, he says, Joshua, I will give you every place you set your foot. Every single place you set your foot. In verse 5, he says, I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. In verse 6, he says, be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers. Verse 7, again, he says, be strong and this time be very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not depart from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. In verse 9, the Lord says again, Have I not commanded you, Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord will be with you wherever you go. Have I not commanded you to be strong and courageous? The word strong in the Hebrew actually means to fasten to fasten yourself or to fasten upon something. And courageous means to be alert. And if you'll just think with me for a second, in my head, what I thought about with those definitions, when God says be strong and courageous several, several times, what he's really saying to Joshua is fasten or attach yourself to me and be alert. That's all you need to do, Joshua. Attach yourself to me, be strong and courageous. When I think of the word courage, it often takes me to the New Testament because I think of the word encouragement and the encourager, the great encourager is the Holy Spirit. That's what he's sent to do is to encourage us, to put courage in us. We sang the song this morning, you make me brave. It doesn't say I make myself brave. I get up and I put on boots and armor and I say, oh, I'm brave. It says, you make me brave. 
You make me brave. And the Lord is reminding Joshua here, be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. Why? Not because you're awesome, Joshua. Not because you have it all together. Not because you're the best leader we've ever seen. But because I will be with you wherever you go. You know, a lot of times in our life, we, we come to a, a place and we don't know what to do next and we don't know where we're going or how to go. And we just say to the Lord, we plead with him, Lord, show me the way, just show me the way and I'll walk in it. I'm willing to, to follow and obey you, just show me the way. And I think so many times the Lord says the opposite. He says, you start walking, girlfriend, and I'll show you the way. You just start following me, and I'll show you the way. You know, we wonder what the will of God is. When I was a campus minister, that was the number one question I had in my office, was how do I know the will of God? And most of the time, because I was so young, I said, I have no idea. But I have since learned, and my big answer to that is, how do you know the will of God? You just walk with him. That's how you know, because if you're walking with the Lord, he will show you the way. But you got to walk. You got to walk with him. So, I like movies. I chose a movie today, to sh- a small clip to show you. It's Indiana Jones. I know that's old for many of you. It's a 1989 movie to Indiana Jones and the Final Crusade. And let me just put this together for you. So, at the end, near the end of the movie, Indy must pass through several tests to reach the Holy Grail. And he knows that the Holy Grail is going to be the only thing that saves his dad, who is close to death. And so he's trying his best to get through all these tests. And one of them has been told to him would be a leap through the lion's mouth or from the lion's mouth. And so he rushes through a doorway below a carved lion's head, and he finds himself right on the edge of this huge, huge canyon. And the door that he's supposed to go to is on the other side of that canyon. And there is nothing between him and the door. And so we pick up here.
he was relieved, don't you? <laughs> relieved that once he took that step, there was actually something there to catch him. But he had to take that step. He had to take a leap of faith, as he called it, and he had to trust. And I think God so often does the same thing with us. You take that leap of faith, and I will provide a way for you. I will show you how you can trust me. The last part, I think, in preparing for the amazing is transformation. God changes us. He changes our heart. He's preparing us for whatever it is he wants to show us, to do in us, to do through us. Ultimately, Joshua, Joshua becomes the leader of the Israelites to take them into the promised land. That was the job that was given to him. And God has already said, I'll be with you. Be strong and courageous. And so we pick up in chapter 3. And it says, early in the morning... Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan. Now I'm just going to pause right here because after, I'm just going to tell you outright how crazy your pastor is, your pastor Keith. So I went back there and he said, do not say Shittim again. And I said, if Derek can say Hordom three times like he did two weeks ago, I can say Shittim because it's a, it's a city. So anyway, he dared me to share that story and so I just did. I may not be here next week with a job, but anyway. Um, yes, the Israelites set out from that city and went to Jordan and where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp. <laughs> what is going on? Did I miss something? Oh, thank you. Oh, boy. Okay. Let me see if I can get back to where we were. This is the important part, okay? So hang with me. All right, so after three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. And then you'll know which way to go since you've never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the Ark. Do not go near it. And in verse 5, I want you to hear what Joshua, who's been through all this, the training, the trials, the transition, learning to trust God. You have this brand new leader, and this is what he says to the people. Verse 5, Joshua told the people, consecrate, which basically means prepare. Get yourself ready. Set aside yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. That's a leader. That's a leader that says, get ready because God wants to do amazing things. I don't have time to read the rest of the story, but I think you know the end, right? The Lord says, when you go to the edge of the Jordan River, have the Levitical priests step their foot into the river, and the waters were part. And ever did they part, about 20 miles away from each other, they parted. And the entire group of Israelites, which was a lot of people, went through on dry land. And it wasn't until the Ark of the Covenant went, left that place that the waters came back to where they were supposed to be. God did do amazing things, as Joshua told them to prepare themselves for. Similar to the Red Sea story that they probably didn't remember because Israelites are like us. We do not remember all the wonderful things that God's done for us. But the Lord did amazing things. And when I was preparing for this, 
And I said, how do we prepare for the amazing? We allow God to train us. We go through trials, we learn from them. We go through transition. We learn to trust God more and we're transformed. That's how we prepare for the amazing. And then God said to me, Think about this. So we've been talking about prepare for the amazing. And in my head, as I prepared for today's sermon, I thought prepare for the amazing thing, the parting of the seas for the Israelites. That's what God was preparing Joshua for. And you may be wondering, what is God preparing me for? What is God preparing you for? I think the amazing is not really a thing or an event. I think the amazing is the fact that God is with us. I don't think we live like people who believe that we have the Holy Spirit, God with us, Emmanuel, living inside of us. We don't live as people who can access that power. That is really amazing. Sure, he will do wondrous works in us, through us, in front of us. And we get to observe those things and we get to celebrate those things. But I think the biggest amazing thing is that God is with us and his Holy Spirit is within us. And we can, by the power of the Holy Spirit, do the impossible. We can do what he's called us to do because he is with us. That's amazing. You know, I can say for a fact that I've gone through a lot of stuff in my life, including my mom's passing. And in those moments of the greatest times of trial or transition, in the times when I've been the loneliness, the loneliest that I've ever been, when God really ends up being all I have, when I look around, I'm like, you're all I got, God. You know what he says? Not yelling, not in a condemning way, but he says to me, Kelly, I'm all you've ever needed. When you find that God is all you have, you find that he is all you need. He's it. He's all you need. And we can prepare for amazing things. And I'm here to tell you, I do believe what Keith said last night, that we are on the brink, last night, last week, that we are on the brink of some amazing things that God wants to do in this church I really, really believe that. But we cannot do any of it unless we live like people who believe the amazing part is that the Holy Spirit is within us. Then he can do amazing things. When you find out God is all you have, you find he's all you need.